Please take a seat. These last few weeks, we've heard from what's generally considered to be the preface of Isaiah, a series of undated prophecies, which in broad strokes evaluate the state of the people and their outlook. Although there are, we have seen promises for future hope, the preface generally leaves us with an assessment of the people of Judah that is quite grim. They are wholly corrupted. They are on their way to disaster. Last week, uh, in a series of woes, Isaiah brought forward the the perverted minds of the people, how deep their corruption had gone. They were so trusting in their own wisdom. They were so proud of themselves that they could sit back and boastfully judge God. They could say to God, let him be quick. Let him speed his work that we may see it. Let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw near. Let it come that we might know it, putting God in the dock giving themselves the position of judge over him. This week in our passage, Isaiah chapter 6, we have our first uh, date, specific dating of a vision of Isaiah. It begins with, in the year King Uzziah died. Uzziah as a king in many ways reflects the state that we've seen that Judah is in in the preface. He enjoyed many gifts from God. His reign enjoyed a great deal of prosperity. Um, but Uzziah grew proud. He forgot God. He attributed that prosperity, that power of his reign to himself. And ultimately, he challenged God directly, entering the temple to perform the duties that God had set aside only to be done by his priests. Uzziah's actions show us what is at the heart of every sin and every sinner. An inflated view of ourselves directly corresponds with a diminished view of God. An inflated view of ourselves corresponds directly with a diminished view of God. Uzziah was so sure of himself. He was so confident. I'm not just any man. I'm the king. That he was sure that he could approach God in his temple and tell God how things were going to go. And God was going to say, well, what can I say? It's Uzziah. It's the king of Judah. I'm going to have to let him come to me on his own terms. In that moment, Uzziah is struck with leprosy. He's rushed out of the temple. He's hidden away where he spends the rest of his life in seclusion. And this is what his life is like when he dies. So the time of this prophecy of Isaiah, when the king and the people have been so confident in themselves, a confidence that they base on the gifts God has given them, that they can see fit to challenge God. This is when Isaiah receives a glimpse of who God really is. Let's read Isaiah 6, starting with verses 1 to 5. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. 
Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Thus far, the word of the Lord. Our first point is this. Isaiah was called as a prophet to reveal the holiness of the Lord to a sinful people. In light of this proud boasting of Israel that we've seen in the preface, when Isaiah gets this vision of God, it makes us think a little bit of that scene uh, that you see repeated in many times in many different ways. Imagine men walking in the woods, and they've heard that there's lions in these woods, and one of them steps forward and says, I'm not afraid of lions. I'd like to tell you what I'd do if I saw a lion wandering in these woods. And of course, even as he's going on about all the things that he'd do to that lion, his friends turn and see a silhouette rising behind him of the very thing that he has been taunting. And we all know what's going to happen when that man turns around and sees the thing that he has been trying to make a mockery of. While the men of Israel have been taunting God, Demanding that God submit to their judgment on their own terms. Isaiah, as their prophetic representative, experiences a manifestation of God in his glory. The context of the death of Uzziah is important here. Uzziah had a long and prosperous reign. He was a very powerful king. His humbling, his illness, his death would have been this shock, this sudden reminder of the mortality and frailty of even the greatest rulers of God's people. In contrast to this human frailty, Isaiah sees a king on a throne. He calls him Adonai. He calls him sovereign. And this is the king, not just of Judah. Now he sees the king of all creation. And the majesty of this king's train is such that it fills up his throne room, the temple, to the point where it's bursting and the walls are shaking and smoke is rising, veiling Isaiah from the already overpowering vision of the glory of the real, true king. The heralds of this glory are called the seraphim, and this is the only place that we see this term for heavenly creatures. It translates roughly to burning, to the ones that burn. The attendants at God's throne themselves shine with a burning glory in their proximity of service to God and their majesty of giving him glory. Glory in scripture is very often associated with fire, and fire is a very good way that God gives us to see glory. This emphasizes for us not just that glory emanates from a source, like heat and light from a flame, but it reminds us that that emanation is dangerous to us. That heat that you start to feel as your hands get near to a flame is a reminder and a warning of the damage, the irreparable damage that would be done if your hands got closer, if you reached out and tried to touch the flame. 
But even these attendants, themselves burning with the glory of God, have to shield their eyes with their wings. They are given wings unto that purpose, to shield themselves from the greater glory of God himself on the throne. And as these burning attendants surround him and tend to him, they vocalize the majesty that Isaiah is experiencing, and they sing, holy, holy, holy. The word holy literally means separate, means cut away, cut apart from. It speaks to the transcendent nature of God over his creation. It speaks to his heightened position. It speaks to his moral perfection. All of that is bound up in the word holy in every way that he can be separate above, greater, cut apart. God is so. This repetition of words, holy, 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 is a linguistic device of emphasis. You find it in other places in the Bible. What we might call in English solid gold or pure gold might in Hebrew have been called gold gold. When Jesus wanted to preface an incredibly important teaching, something he wanted people to hear, what did he say? Amen, amen, truly, truly. But here we have a term that is not just given twice, but said thrice. This praise, holy, 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 is not just a reminder that this praise to God is continuous. That forever around his throne they're proclaiming holy, 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 holy. But this thrice repeating of the word is Isaiah's reminder that God is emphatically holy. He's not just the holiest thing. He is the one that is holiness itself. It is essential to understanding who he is. Holiness is knit into the fabric of his godness. His justice is holy justice. His grace is holy grace. His love is holy love. And we will not really understand those attributes of God until we truly appreciate God's holy, holy, holiness. And nothing other than God can truly be called holy, except that we are talking about its proximity to or relationship with God himself. The angels follow up this declaration by saying, the whole earth is full of his glory. Creation emanates the glory of God. It was made to do so. It doesn't add to God's glory. A great work of art doesn't have an inherent glory unto itself that it then gives to its artist. The artist is glorified in the work because it was only through him that the work could be anything. Whenever a work of art is considered to be amazing, it reminds us that there is an artist at least that amazing, greater than the thing that they have created. We live and breathe and eat and rest upon a canvas which tells us that it has an artist greater than itself. And it's upon this canvas displaying God's glory that men sit back and judge whether or not God can be real, whether or not God can be good. And meanwhile, he is upholding and continuing his work through creation which emanates his glory.
What happens to Isaiah when he meets this God who so many of his people have been content to sit back and evaluate like God is a tired philosophical theory? What would you do if you found out that you were going to get a special audience with Queen Elizabeth? You would likely immediately start to ask yourself how it is appropriate to behave in the presence of a monarch. You would do some research. You would try and learn etiquette for speaking to royalty. You would likely even have someone who schooled you before you went in to see the queen. This is how you speak. This is what you should say, what you shouldn't say. This is what you should do, when you should do it. Do not do these things. If you do this thing, you're probably going to be executed. And then when you're in the queen's presence, after all of that study and all of that schooling, you will be hyper aware of yourself. You will be so conscious of what you are doing, so conscious of your actions. Am I saying the right thing? Am I doing the right thing? This was also true when people met monarchs in scripture. When Isaiah is in the presence of the king, the Adonai, the Lord of hosts, the sovereign over all creation, Isaiah doesn't get an opportunity to be self-reflective about the best way to act in the presence of God. Whether or not Isaiah believed in who God was before this, in this moment, his mind and his senses now have the reality of a holy, 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 glorious God imposed upon them. And the experience is such that Isaiah does not get to choose how he will respond any more than he would get to choose how he would respond if he were suddenly dropped into the sun. He falls down sharing the response of the whole shaking temple of God in God's presence. And he cries out, woe is me for I am lost for I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Remember in Isaiah, we just heard woes, a series of woes pronounced upon the worst sinners in the kingdom. Pronouncing woe is the opposite of pronouncing blessing. It's a term of doom for your sin. And now in the presence of God, Isaiah can't help but call out woe upon himself. That term, I am lost, it's been translated as ruined or undone. It, it technically literally means I am silent, but it is the silence that follows death or destruction. Isaiah has become painfully aware. He has experienced his own death, not that he physically dies, but he is aware of his state of death. Isaiah suddenly becomes aware of his own natural condition. He experiences what Paul describes, the natural state of humanity. When Paul tells the Ephesians, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you, which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the mind and the body, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind." Isaiah in this moment doesn't just see God. Isaiah sees himself. It's like an ant that for the first time comes out of the anthill and sees giraffes and rhinoceros and elephants. The ant has not just learned what an elephant is. He has suddenly learned what an ant is in a world with elephants. 
everything that we said about God's holiness, that shows Isaiah himself as the contrast. His creatureliness, his lowliness, his sin. Now he sees it. Now Isaiah knows it. As Calvin explains it, it's like a man who is in the dark comparing various shades of dark gray, determining which of them is white. And that man is suddenly introduced to pure, bright white. And suddenly that slightly less dark gray, which he once took for pure white, is now indistinguishable from the other shadows around it. Isaiah has now met holiness. And it exposes him as a man of unclean lips amidst a people of unclean lips. It makes sense for Isaiah to focus upon his lips. First, because it shows Isaiah's own natural inadequacy to serve as a prophet. But second, because it speaks to that pride and that boasting, that judging God, which is at the heart of all of the sins of the men of Judah. Their self-assurance. Their confidence that they are wise, that they can judge for themselves what is good and right until they're calling evil good and bitter sweet and darkness light and judging God by those backward standards. Friends, this is who God is today. This vision is the vision of our unchanging God while we are hiding and trying to cover up our secret sins, this is who God is. While we are grumbling about not getting what we deserve and not getting our rights and people not treating us the way that they should be treating us, this is who God is. When we accuse God of whether or not his will was right or good or best, this is who God is. When dictators are flexing their muscles and trying to build empires, this is who God is. When you are comparing yourself to others, thinking that you're doing really well and boasting in your morality and your righteousness, this is who God is. How quickly in our arrogance do we fall back to a diminished view of God and an inflated view of ourselves? Even as we are reading Isaiah's vision of God's holiness and glory, how quickly we go back to comparing shadows to determine which of them is purest white. Isaiah saw this sight not to keep it to himself, but to expose Israel to it, to expose us to God's holiness. And pray that you would be struck by it just a little like Isaiah was that you would glimpse the holiness and the glory of the king of hosts. Not just because it will bowl you over and knock the pride right out of you, but also because of how God responds when we recognize our sin and tremble at his holiness. Let's read verses 6 and 7. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. This is our second point. Isaiah was called as a prophet to proclaim God's atonement for sin. 
No sooner does Isaiah recognize his sin and his inability before God than God comes to him and meets his need. God does so at the altar. One of the seraphim goes to the burning coals, the coals that perform the work of devouring the sacrifice of atonement, and he transfers that heat to Isaiah's mouth. The notion of touching the mouth can be found in Daniel and Jeremiah. It's visual assurance that a prophet will speak words that God has directly put into their mouth. But Isaiah's touching comes with a declaration of atonement. And remember what we said earlier about fire. Fire shows us the reality that God's glory burns us up. And this, of course, points us to God's wrath. God in his holiness hates all sin. Think of how a mother would hate to see her child hurt. Think of how an artist would hate to see their greatest work vandalized. Think of how a tailor would hate to see a fresh bleached white shirt soiled. Take all of that and put it in one and times it by infinity and you are starting to look at how God feels about sin. And his holiness demands that he respond and that he respond perfectly, that he bring justice. Part of Isaiah's crumbling before God comes from feeling that intolerance to sin in God's nature, which will pour out in wrath. And yet that burning, that wrath is taken from the altar and it is applied to Isaiah for atonement, for healing. At the altar, that fire burned up sacrifices. That was its job. It burned up substitutes. The fire of the coals overtook another in Isaiah's place. So then the fire of wrath for Isaiah has already been poured out. It's been taken. So God now can accept this substitution for Isaiah and apply it to him and say, your guilt is removed, your sin is atoned for. Now there's a sense that the fire of God is even cleansing for Isaiah. It does a work on his mouth that he had told God was unclean. If God had been less holy, 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 he could have tried receiving sinners into his presence by just abandoning his view of justice. Let's let sin reign. He could have agreed with us about our backwards view of justice and wisdom. He would have let us call evil good and darkness light. He could have done it too and just let things slide until we had ruined all of creation and destroyed and hated each other. Or God could have committed himself to his justice and not demonstrated mercy through atonement. This would have been holy. But it would not have so displayed God's holiness and his glory as he desired to. The holy, holy, holy God in a moment shows Isaiah that though sin will never be less reprehensible to him, in his perfection, he will satisfy his justice and still receive sinners into his holy presence. After this atonement is applied, Isaiah can hear God's voice. He can gain admittance into God's counsel. God is now approachable for Isaiah. Isaiah can even step forward and be so bold as to ask to be used for God's purposes. Verse 8 
And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, now we can hear God's voice. Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then I said, here I am, send me. The one whose sin is atoned for can now, instead of pursuing what is unclean, serve God's purposes and can even be invited in to participate in them. The one who is atoned for can now join with creation in doing what we were all made for in proclaiming God's glory. And just as Isaiah will reveal this vision of God's holiness to his hearers, he will show them how God atones for sin to receive sinners to himself. And Isaiah's promises of atonement that we will find throughout his prophecies are increasingly bound up in the revealed ministry of the Messiah, who himself would come to reveal the holiness the image of the invisible God. John 12 tells us that it was the glory of Jesus that Isaiah saw in this vision of holiness. Paul attributes God's words in this passage to the spirit. So we recognize that there is a Trinitarian glory emanating from this God who refers to himself in this passage as us. But we see that this glory, this holiness is revealed also in the person of Jesus. Kevin read for us how John at the beginning of his revelation is similarly struck as though dead when he beholds Jesus in a vision of his glory. When the apostle Peter first had that curtain pulled back just a little and he got a glimpse of the holiness and the glory of Jesus. Luke tells us that Peter fell down at Jesus' knees saying, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. And what did Jesus do in response to Peter's Isaiah-like falling before his glory? He told Peter to follow him, and he led him to the cross where Jesus died for Peter and for you and for me. Our trust is in him. That burning coal that touched Isaiah's mouth, the sacrifices that God accepted from his Old Testament people until Jesus came were to point us to how this holy God would work perfect atonement at the cross There, Jesus bore the full burning wrath of a holy, holy God against those that tremble and crumble before him. He drank God's wrath dry for Peter, John, Isaiah, and you and me if we trust in him. And when he died... That curtain in the temple which separated this holy presence of God from the people which guarded them from this burning fire split in two. Telling us that through his atonement we indeed are also admitted into the presence of this holy God from whom we were separated. It is our assurance that through Jesus you can draw near 
Our guilt is taken, our sin atoned for, and whatever fire we experience in our life becomes the cleansing discipline of a father, which prepares us to be able to stand in his holy presence one day forever. And he even now receives us to serve him and proclaim his glory and participate in his kingdom. We do not get to share in the receiving of special revelation, special eyewitness testimony, like the apostles and prophets, like Isaiah did. But we, we will, like Isaiah, now be able to humbly and willingly step forward and serve God and his kingdom when we otherwise, when we previously could only serve passions and pride. We are freed from that addiction to sin and selfishness and self-righteousness. And we can be renewed to perform that purpose for which we were made. We can display and proclaim the glory of that holy God. When Isaiah steps forward and responds to God's call, it will indeed be his ministry like ours to proclaim the good news that God offers atonement to anyone who recognizes His holiness humbles themselves before God and sees our sin. Yet God commissions Isaiah to share this message knowing that many people will reject it, even hate it. Isaiah is even going to proclaim that rejection himself. Let's look back verse 8 through verse 10. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then I said, here I am, send me. And he said, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Our third point is this. Isaiah was called as a prophet to expose the hardness of heart of the people. This was a hard calling for Isaiah. And it is still a painful part of proclaiming the word of God. Isaiah is himself going to declare what will happen when the people hear God's word proclaimed. Many will hear it. And their hearts will harden, their ears and eyes will close. The preaching of the word itself will do this work. The word of God is not only the means by which many are renewed and regenerated. It is also that thing which seals many people's reprobation as they reject it. It is their refusal to understand God's holiness, to understand his love, to understand his offer of salvation. It is in that refusal that God is shown to be just in his wrath against them, even shown to be just in his wrath against those who did not fear here, but had the same closed hearts. This passage is regularly quoted and paraphrased in the New Testament to explain how many people continued to claim to be God's people and then reject him as his word was proclaimed. It's even quoted to show why many who claimed to be God's people, rejected the word made flesh, rejected Jesus when they saw him. Though this is a painful work in the proclamation of the gospel, it's a good one. It exposes those who were lying when they claimed to love God and his word, when they claimed that what they were speaking was the gospel, so that we and the world can now more clearly recognize what it actually looks like 
to be God's people and what the gospel itself actually looks like. When the Christian cults are forced to say that the scriptures are corrupted, the Jehovah's Witness and Mormons. When the Roman church said that tradition had to interpret scripture so that they could add or remove or change doctrines. When the liberal preachers pit Jesus against the scriptures. This is a good work that God does for the sake of his elect. It exposes false views of God and salvation. It exposes hypocrisy and pride. The proclamation of the word reveals the true shape and scope of God's people. It has been doing this since the days of Isaiah. It was doing it before Isaiah. Now this can give us confidence when we share the gospel or encourage our church to proclaim the gospel. We can be confident that this is a work that God desires to be done Even as people reject it, that rejection is not a sign that the preaching of the gospel is false or failed. If you were to try and turn preaching or evangelism into something that everyone would love and run to, you would be forced to fundamentally change the gospel itself. Andy Stanley proved this. When his attractional church model amounted to him saying that we have to unhitch our preaching and evangelism from the Old Testament. You cannot have a gospel that men in their flesh love and run to without changing the gospel. If somebody laments to you about the state of the church today. Oh, and there's how many so-called believers there are. How many Christians today look like the world. Agree with them. Lament with them, but you can remind them that this has always been true. This was true in the days of Isaiah or Elijah when he lamented, God, I seem like the only one left. Or in the days of Paul. We, like them, can keep confidently proclaiming God's word. Because even as it exposes all of the hypocrisy among those who say they are God's people, it will be the means by which God calls and holds those who are truly his. And this work of exposing false faith will be one of the means by which the elect can now recognize the true gospel and run to it and trust in it. Just as Isaiah is going to proclaim the rejection of many people to God's healing and grace, so too will he pronounce judgment on them. He will warn of the end of all of our hardness of heart. Let's read verses 11 to 13. Then I said, how long, O Lord? And he said, until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste, and the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. This is the word of the Lord. This is our fourth point. Isaiah was called as a prophet to explain God's just punishment for their sin. Isaiah's cry, how long, O Lord, that echoes the laments in Scripture. Even thousands of years ago, God's prophets were already asking, how long, God, are you going to put up with this sin and rejection as men mock you, as they diminish your name, as they despise you? How can this God who is holy, 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 willingly let his words be scorned even by those who claim to belong to him and honor him? 
Our God is patient. He's still patient. But one of the roles of his prophets, including Isaiah, is to warn that his just wrath will come. If men do not receive his atonement, that fire that did burn up another on Isaiah's behalf will one day pour out on all those whose sins have not been atoned for. Isaiah is called to preach desecration of the kingdom and exile and even pain for those who remain in the land. This will be a major part of Isaiah's forward-looking office as a prophet, to preach that God's judgment is fixed and to explain how it will come about. In rejecting even these warnings, the men of Judah will all the more demonstrate the justice of God bringing judgment against them. Just as many people today hate more than anything to hear about hell, even as the warning about hell is being continually offered to them so that they might escape from it. But Isaiah's commission does not come without hope. At the close of this warning, God says the remnant of his people after they return from exile will be like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. And this is the final note that we see in the calling of Isaiah. Isaiah was called as a prophet to promise hope for the remnant. We should be well prepared to encounter this metaphor, having already seen references to the branch or the vineyard in Isaiah's preface. Just like the ruined vineyard in chapter 5, this picture of a tree that's become a stump shows, first, the extent of God's judgment on his people. This closing statement also appears to form an inclusio. It's your word of the day, inclusio, which is a device that means the meaning of a passage can be in part understood by looking at how its closing and opening mirror each other. And explain what is included in it. How did our passage open? It was the year that King Uzziah died. Our passage opened with a reminder of the mortality and weakness of the kings of Judah. Contrasted strikingly with the glorious kingship of the eternal God. Now we've already seen how Uzziah's failings paralleled and reflected the sins of his people. As Uzziah dies, the kingship, like the people, is starting to look like a ruined stump. And both together would, through God's judgment, ultimately appear to be totally ruined, cut off. Isaiah will, in fact, soon introduce us to the phrase, stump of Jesse. To explain how the kings of Judah, like the people, are cut off by God's judgment. So just as we've already seen in Isaiah, this picture of a stump is looking both at the people and at the one man, the son of David, who represents them. Both will look together very much like a dead stump, but the holy God can bring life to that which apart from him is dead. And so the stump itself, says Isaiah, will be a holy seed. And in this Hebrew word for seed, zerah, we see a wonderful word with fantastic breadth. This is the word used, of course, for the seed of a plant, but also the seed of a man. It is the word used for offspring, for descendants, even for an ethnic people, an extended family group. Zerah covers all these meanings. So we see that as God has cut down this people to a stump, he has done so because in that stump is the seed, the holy offspring, 
the continuing line of life for his descendants. And this does indeed refer to the preservation of the people, but only because this refers to the preservation of the offspring of the king. Not just any seed, a holy seed. And of course, in this vision, you should feel the weight of that word. What does it mean to call that seed holy? It's going to have to come entirely from God. It's going to have to be entirely his work. It will have to be his seed, his offspring. And any offspring that God preserves for himself among people will only be able to be called holy through the one that is indeed holy God, God's true holy offspring. This word promising a holy seed, a holy offspring is found as far back as Abraham. It's found as far back as the promise that the head of the serpent would be crushed by the seed of the woman. Since the beginning, God's people have been pointed to the promises that God will indeed preserve descendants, an offspring, a remnant, but only because these promises actually truly point to the only one seed and offspring that could really be called holy, even called holy, holy, holy. As Paul taught us in Galatians, any hope for an offspring of God is bound up in the singular offspring, Jesus Christ. And we know that he would indeed, after he had lived a holy life, stand in the place of all those who God had elected as his offspring when he bore the wrath of atonement for their sins. And then rising from the dead, he promised new life, even holy life, to those who would otherwise have been dead in their sins and transgressions. New life on the other side of atonement in which we can approach God, call him father, be a part of his holy seed and offspring because we are united with the holy seed and offspring, Jesus Christ. United with him in his death, united in his resurrection, united with him in his life, even united with him in his glorious reign. One day, Christ the King will be revealed in glory to all the world and his holy, holy, holiness will shine over them. Paul says on that day, every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that he is Lord. Everyone in the world will get their Isaiah-like experience of encountering his holiness. But for some, it will be full of wailing and despair as they behold that burning fire of glory, which will be God's wrath burning against them forever. And for others, this will be the sight of reverent awe of beholding the king that they have trusted in and the glory that they will dwell in forever. This picture of Isaiah should be near to us always as God is near to us. And it is a glimpse of our God. I hope that we will all be shaken by it. That for some of us, it would be a warning of the God who we have been offending or ignoring without fear the God who will one day pour out glorious wrath over sin. I pray that you would not be hardened when you hear about it, that you would instead be shaken by it. Then to see that this holy God is so good that he offers atonement. 
to those who've maligned him, even to his enemies. I pray that you would receive that and that you would call this holy God, your King, even Jesus, his perfect, holy son, your King. I hope that for all of us, myself included, that we would humble ourselves every day before this holy God, that we would see no better purpose in this world than to live for his glory, that we would depend on him, that we'd keep our eyes fixed on him and that our hope would be in the day where we will glorify him forever around the throne, where we will join his angels as they continue to sing, holy, holy, holy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I ask that we would indeed be struck by what Isaiah saw in the temple. Your holiness and your glory. And God, we know that our hearts are so often dull and our eyes are so often closed and our ears are so often closed, so much so that we could read this and ignore it, that we could continue to live in selfishness, live as enemies towards you. So God, just as your work will close some eyes and ears, I pray that your Holy Spirit through the preaching of your word would open ours, that we would behold your glory, that we would see your holiness, and in seeing it and being humbled by it, Father, that we would not delay to run to the atonement of Jesus Christ so that your glorious fire would even be for us, not one that burns us forever, but one that we praise you for having already poured out on Christ so that it might even be our healing and our good discipline. And Father, as we experience the glory of the gospel of Jesus, may we glorify you more. And Father, as we live in a world of many people who are blind and deaf and dull, may we live with hope and keep our eyes ever on the day where we will behold and dwell in your glory forever. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.